we're glad you're here. You guys can uh, make your way back to your seats and after service, there'll be time you can finish conversations and pick them back up where you were. Um, and uh, one of you will have to remember like the person's name, you know, um, sometimes that happens where you forget the person's name you're talking to. But anyway, uh, glad you're here this morning. We're going to finish our series in Ruth this morning. Uh, we've been in the book of Ruth. If you go to our live page, you can click on the scriptures. If not, you can just turn in your Bible to the book of Ruth. We're going to be in chapter 4. We'll go to a couple of other scriptures uh, as well. Uh, but we've been in the midst of this series, and the title of our series uh, is Ruth, Redeemer Love. Redeemer Love. And um, the idea of Redeemer Love is what does it look like to, to need a Redeemer, to, to need someone to save us? That's what a Redeemer does. A Redeemer is, is someone who comes and buys you back because you are sold out. You're, you're sold into slavery and a redeemer has to buy you out of it. The mess is so bad that there's no way for you to rescue yourself unless someone comes and pays for you. Now this isn't that foreign in our culture. It wasn't that long ago that we as a nation practiced the buying and selling of slaves. Right or wrong, wrong in my opinion, right? The reality is this is something that goes deep to our soul because the first step in anything is, is admitting that I'm even sold out. When you can't even admit that you're a slave, then when someone comes to buy you, it's like a foreign concept, right? Like, well, I'm not a slave. I'm, I'm just happy. Everything's fine. I'm, I'm good to go. Like, my life's good. I, I, you're in slavery. No, no, I'm not. I, it's, all, it's all fine. You see... When you read this book and you look at what it means to, to need a redeemer and to need love, the reality is, even when I say those two words, for me, I have to check my expectations and my own definitions at the door. Because I have my own expectations of what love should look like, what a redeemer should look like, and if it doesn't fit my expectations, well then, I'm out of here. I've already decided what it's going to look like. You see, I want to tell God and others how they will redeem me, and I want to tell God and others how I will be loved. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. I'll just put myself in another slave relationship. I'll be bought by another person, and hopefully that'll fix it. When ultimately God's saying, I want to purchase you back forever, like in a relationship, and that you'll respond to me understanding that you can deny and say, well, I'm not sold to anybody. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. That's such a joke, right? So our Chouse property, the, chow, the, the property that was donated to us, right? The, the Chouse, we call it the church house because there was a steeple on the end of a ranch house. It looked absolutely ridiculous. Like, why you do that, I don't know, but somebody did it. And so thankfully, someone traded the steeple to repave our driveway. They said, hey, can we have your steeple? We need it for a real church, not a house, good, and I own a paving business, I'll take it off the roof, I'll repair the roof, and I'll pave your driveway for free, if I can just have the steeple. I'm like, deal, take it. But we still call it the church house, okay? That's, that's the chouse that we're going to be working on this week. Here's the interesting thing. We own it, right? We, the land deed says that the property is ours, but we got a notification last week. We got a notification from our local government telling us that in three weeks, we were, not gonna, we were gonna no longer own that property. You wanna know why? Because we forgot to pay a $30 ditch fee to the Monroe County government. 
a $30 ditch tax. And since it was in lapse, we, we basically when we were transitioning the home, right, because we took over ownership, they mailed it to the wrong address, that address didn't get it to us, it was just a mix-up, and we got a notification telling us that that property was no longer ours in three weeks. They were going to sell it, and we had, once they sold it, there was nothing we could do about it because of a $30 mistake. You do not own your property. The government does. They give you permission to live on it. You don't think I'm right? You try not paying your ditch fee and see what happens. When they come knocking on your door and saying, hey, we bought your house, and you're like, what? Yeah, you didn't pay your $30 ditch fee. You just lost a $200,000 investment, oh, because of a $30 mistake. That's government. We are all in slavery. And the second you think you're not, you are in pride. You are in total pride. And the government and the world will remind you that you are a slave. And the second that you think you're free to do whatever you want, there will be police officers there to remind you that you're a slave, that there are rules and laws you must follow. And if you don't, they will put you in slavery, in jail, to pay off a debt. Like, this isn't a hard thing, but then we don't see the world that way, which is why it's hard for us to see God that way, to see a God that would look at us and say, I I'm telling you, you're a slave and you need desperately to be bought back. You need desperately to have a new definition of love because the one you have is so twisted, you have no idea how deeply twisted it is. Your definition of love keeps bringing you back to a relationship of slavery. That's exactly what's happening in Ruth with redeeming love. You see, Ruth got it. She surrendered and she expected nothing in return and probably expected hardship because she knew that she was going to be a foreigner in the land she was going to. And more than a foreigner, she was, going to be treated, she was going to be treated with racism when she got there because of who she was. She understood that she was never going back to her old way of life. She was never going back to her old land. She was never going back to her old gods. See, to redeem is to buy back. And Ruth understood that the decision that she was making was to be bought by a God and it would never be the same. And it would cost her everything, but it was worth it. You see, when we talk about renewing our lives, which is what we're going to talk about as we wrap up this morning, renewing your life, renewing my life, we often come to that with a set of expectations, not surrender. We already have defined what I want my life to look like, and if it doesn't look that way, then I'm upset. And God, you're not coming through, and this person's not coming through, and that person. And so we already have a set expectation that we have that says, this is what life should look like. And I have this expectation of it, and if that isn't met, then I'm upset. God is going to renew my life, yet I look at him and tell him how he's going to do it. And often I'm going to tell others how they're going to do it for me. One of my greatest frustrations in ministry, greatest frustrations over all my years, and it's the same problem I have, okay? So I'm not blaming other people. This is the same hard attitude I can have in a second. Is people coming to me saying they're seeking help only to have them tell me that they've already decided what God has told them. They're looking for approval, not counsel. Normally their decision has not come from Scripture, and if it has come from Scripture, it's been so twisted up to make sense that you're like, have you read 
anything else than, other than that verse you're like hanging on? Like, have you read anything else other than that one verse? No, this is the verse I'm going to claim. Claim this. Like, there's a, there's, it's totally out of context, but you're going to claim it. And then he goes on, and here's the other side of it. Or they come to me and tell me what they have decided, and they know which scriptures they're unwilling to look at that I need to show them to show them a new way of life. So either they've come and they've already made up their mind or they come to me and they've already decided what's off limits for me or God to tell them. And the second that they hear it, they're gone. See, that was Orpha in the story. Remember, she she was told, Ruth looked at her and said, you can leave, you can go back to your gods. And she left and went back to her way of life and she disappeared into history oblivion. We know nothing about her other than she gave up. And here you have this where typically that's what I have to deal with in ministry. Is when I open the scriptures with people, it's like, I've already decided that scripture's not for me. No, that one's not for me either. No, that one's not for me. This is the one I like. This is the one I'm claiming. Okay, but what about this over here? Nope, off limits. I've already decided. I've already made up my mind. God already spoke to me. And it is so frustrating. And listen, I can be the same way. So I'm not throwing all you under the bus. I can be the same way in my relationships if I'm not careful. If I don't have people in my life who I know know the word and can challenge me and point out other places in scripture, if I'm not purposely putting myself in other relationships that think a little bit differently than I do, I can fall into that same trap so easily where where I become the God that tells God and others what they're going to do for me instead of me letting God be God and him letting me him telling me whatever he wants to tell me. I also typically then don't go to the hard parts of scripture. One of my joys this week, we took a few days, Susan and I, Clint and one of his friends, and we traveled to uh, Branson, Missouri. We'd been there 17 years ago on a seven-week mission trip. Uh, we hadn't been back in 17 years. And kind of last minute, we said, you know, let's just get out of town for a few days. Because if we don't get out of town, Susan and I will just keep doing stuff. Because we just... We have a lot of responsibilities. We serve. We'll just keep serving and doing stuff. So we said, we got to get out of town. So we went, got a great deal, didn't spend much, which was great, and just got away for like two days. Drove on Wednesday, got there Thursday, Friday, and then came back on Saturday. And during that time, I I was having a blast reading through the book of Deuteronomy. How many of you have ever thought, man, I want to go to the the book of Deuteronomy, and it's just going to be fun to read? Most people avoid Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. Those are the books that like skip over in my Bible reading plan so I can get to the good stuff, right? I loved it. We're going to do it this summer, and so that's why I'm reading through it. I'm trying to prepare this summer. I'm reading through the book of Deuteronomy, and I am just like, wow, I couldn't put it down. I was getting up early on vacation to read it and just enjoying worshiping God and like, this is so cool, and Everybody else is asleep, and I'm just trying to read and stay quiet, which I'm not good at. But anyway, and so I was amazed at this book. And I'm looking, and I'm like, wow, no one in Deuteronomy thought this was the way to renew their life. If you read Deuteronomy, you don't think, wow, this is going to help renew my life. You're like, look at all these rules. This is so stupid. I don't want this. But you know what? In the first 10 chapters, Moses says to God's people over and over and over again in that book. And man, it hit me like a, like a rock this week. He says, because of your grumbling and complaining. 
over and over. You're a stiff-necked people, and you can see it because you grumble and whine and complain. I owe you nothing. I am God, and I willingly make you my children and adopt you and love you. And I willingly tell you the truth because I care about you. I'm reading through that, and man, I'm just like thinking about the drive down there for seven hours on the highway, and I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I was a stiff-necked driver. Like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm thinking through this, and I'm like, man, like it's just so easy to complain and grumble and not pause like Ruth does and just be grateful that she gets to know God. And that's Ruth's heart. This is what Jesus says in Luke 9, 23. Before we get into the rest of the story, Jesus said to them, all, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Listen, Ruth knew that to go with Naomi meant to deny everything. She was picking up, she was going to die to her entire system of living. She was no longer a Moabite. She's now an Israelite, but she's a foreigner, so she's got to obey the foreign laws that were there in Israel. She knew, she wasn't walking into this. She knew that by making this commitment, it was going to cost her her life. We find her for months picking grain up out of the field to feed herself and Naomi with joy. Ruth never grumbles. If you ever see that in the book, she never grumbles or complains, not once. And she didn't have to be in on this. She wasn't an Israelite. Naomi didn't really have a choice. She was an Israelite. Ruth chose it. She goes into it, and it's like, for whoever wants to save his life might have to lose it. Is that what it says? No, thank you. It says will. Like, you can't have it both ways. You can't keep what you want and have your expectations and walk into a new relationship of any kind. You've got to surrender yourself. And he looks here and he says, what, look at this, he says, whoever wants to save will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Not might save it if you're good enough. No, if you're willing to surrender like Ruth did, if you're willing to lay down your life, you can trust God to renew your life and save you because that's the kind of God he is and that's the kind of people he's looking for. But we won't do it. I struggle to do it. I've got my systems and my ways of doing things and I don't know if I can give those up for whoever is ashamed of me or what, what if, is a man benefited if he gains the whole world yet forfeits himself. We're gonna see in this passage an example of that. What does it matter if you have everything and yet you for, forfeit your very being? What does it matter if we went and did an entire work week on the chouse and didn't get the notice and two weeks later I have to stand before you as a church and say the property is no longer ours, it's gone in a sheriff's sale. Thanks for your time. Well, what did it profit me to go work and help when government just comes and takes it? Well, if you know you're living for eternity, then it doesn't matter. You can celebrate the fact that God gave you breath, he gave you arms, he gave you strength. You got to do something. Instead of sitting on your ear and watching TV, great, praise the Lord. See, that's the difference. And he goes on and he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words. I love that. Jesus is like, it's not just you say you know me. Are you ashamed of my words? Can I tell you that we live in a, in a time period 
where so many Christians are ashamed of the Bible. They are ashamed of God's word. They're ashamed of what he says is true in scripture. We constantly try to sugarcoat it. And well, I don't want to have to tell them what God says. I don't want to have to say what God says because it's just, I know what's going to happen if I do. And I, I just, I'd rather just not say anything. And we want to sugarcoat it. And he's like, if you're ashamed of my words, you better question where your relationship is with me. If you're ashamed, that shows something that you're afraid. In 1 John, we'll look at 1 John in a minute, but in 1 John it says perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. That if you're loved perfectly, if you understand that you're loved perfectly, then you can be like Ruth and give love to everyone else, not looking to get it from anyone. But if you don't know that God loves you perfectly, that he cares for you, that he forgives you, that he wants to renew your life, then you're going to use everyone around you to get it. And you're going to be miserable. You're going to think you're gaining when all the time you're forfeiting everything. And he says, look at this, when, his, when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and his holy angels. Jesus says there's a day coming when it's all going to be set right, when all of life will be made right. Now you can say, and judgment's going to come, and I've said this numerous times, everyone, every world religion, every scientist, everybody agrees that there's coming a day when humanity will be wiped out. It, humanity will be judged and we will be wiped out. Doesn't matter what version you come from, it's an absolute truth. The question is, is there anything beyond that? And if there is, what kind of God, what kind of being is behind it all and is there any hope? Because that's a big question that we just like to avoid today. But I am telling you, doesn't matter who you are, there's gonna be a day coming when fire rains down and it's over. It's gonna happen. The sun's going to burn out, an asteroid's going to hit us, something's going to happen, and you're going to be gone. Guaranteed. So what do you do? Do you just live life for you? You're your own God, get as much as you can? Do you just live for everybody else? Or is there something even greater than that? And Ruth understood there was something greater than that, which is what motivated and drove her every day. And it's why she said to Naomi, your God will be my God, my people will be your people. Where you go, I will go. This isn't about me and you. This is bigger than us. And Ruth got it. She understood it. And in 4.1, here's Boaz. Now, let me catch you up with the story, okay? So tune back in for a minute to catch up back on the story. The story of Ruth is a mess. In chapter 1, Naomi and her husbands and two sons leave their homeland in Judah on account of circumstances, okay? Basically, there's a famine, and they say we need to leave, so they leave. They leave the land of promise based on circumstance, not truth. God didn't tell them to leave, so we don't know if they did the right thing or the wrong thing. We just know they left. So they left. Others did not leave. A lot of people stayed and through the famine. Then Naomi's husband dies. Her, son marries, her two sons marry Moabite women, and for 10 years, all the women are barren. For 10 years, these women don't have any children. They can't get pregnant. They're barren. It goes on, it says, and then her sons die, Naomi's sons die, leaving two widows for Naomi. Naomi, in her depression, encourages her daughter-in-laws to abandon her God, and Orpha does. Orpha actually abandons God in her depression and her pain. Orpha says, you know what, I leave. And Naomi had to live with the responsibility of that probably the rest of her life. 
However, Ruth cleaves to Naomi based on Ruth's belief in Naomi's God, not in Naomi. Naomi already told her, I don't want you around. You're terrible. Leave me. Go get a life for yourself. Go renew your life by finding a new husband. That's what he should, you got to go find somebody else. I'm just an old widow. I got nothing. When I go back to Judah, there's nothing there for me. I left it all. There's nothing. And it ends with Naomi's bitter complaint. She says, I went away full. In other words, I had sons. I had a husband. I went away full with promise, with hope of, of, of not being in a famine. And the Lord has brought me back more famineist, more empty than I am now. That's, I mean, this story after chapter one, you're like, this is awful. And then she says, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And she changed her name and says, everyone please call me Mara, which means bitter. And can you imagine? Talk about complaining, grumbling. Then it goes on. And Naomi blames God, she blames others, and she blames herself to the point of utter depression and bitterness. We see people desperately in need of a redeemer and one person is giving her life trusting the redeemer God and that's Ruth in chapter two Naomi is filled with new hope because this guy Boaz appears on the scene because Ruth is just going out and just doing simple living she's trying to provide food to eat for Naomi and her she's picking up like a poor person does in the fields and we looked at that but he doesn't propose to Ruth he doesn't even make any moves he, he, he's kind, but it's like he wants nothing to like do with her. At least that's the way it seems. So then the chapter two closes, brimming with hope, but also with great suspense and uncertainty how this all might work out, especially without scandal. It ends with us asking, who are these people? What is going on? It seems like a disaster. In chapter three, Naomi and Ruth make a risky move in the middle of the night. Ruth goes to Boaz on the threshing floor and says, in effect, I want you to sp spread your wing over me as my husband. I want to rest under your wing. We heard about that last week and that idea. And she went to the threshing floor and there was no scandal. She laid at his feet. They, they were pure. But can you imagine? Boaz is a business owner and he's at the threshing floor working his rear end off. He could have paid people to thresh. But see, I think Boaz was the kind of guy that loved to thresh because he loved to see the fruit of his labor. He, he wanted to thresh. He wanted the harvesters to harvest, but he wanted to participate, not just have everybody do everything for him. He wanted to be a part of it. So we find him exhausted on the threshing floor to the point that he doesn't even wake up when Ruth comes in and lays at his feet. He's like there for a minute. Then he wakes up and he's surprised because he's so exhausted. This guy didn't have to work. This guy was a self-made man. This guy had slaves and servants and everything else. And we find him working his tail off. What a man. And it says that he was such a man of character. But right when the tragedy of Ruth's widowhood seems to be resolved, like you're thinking, okay, this is it. Boaz is going to say, yes, we're going to do this. It's going to be. Boaz looks and he says, there's another man, according to the Hebrew custom, who has a prior claim to redeem Naomi's husband and land and line. And Mary Ruth, the impeccably honest and man of character Boaz will not proceed without giving this other guy the lawful opportunity. This was his chance to be the redeemer. This was his chance to show the love he wanted to show. And he's like, mm, we need to check in with God's law on what's redeeming and loving. I don't get to just do what I want to do to you. I just don't get you. I need to really check in with God on what he says is really loving and what real redemption is. 
And so he does. And can you imagine the shock? Ruth obeys Naomi. She goes. She thinks this is it. Wow, this is going to be great. And he's like, sorry, can't do it. Go home. We'll see what happens. Ruth and Boaz are putting themselves completely at the mercy of the authorities around them. They are not running off into marriage. They're saying, if this guy says no, we're done. We're not going. We can't. We can't move forward. We're at his mercy because that's the way it's supposed to work. That's crazy to us because that's not the way we do relationships in our culture at all. And maybe it should be. Maybe we need to have some people in our lives that will tell us the truth and give us some warnings and show us our own heart instead of as soon as the post is on Facebook, everybody likes it. Every time I see one of those posts, like two people get, I'm like, yeah, I hope they're ready. I hope they got good premarital counseling. They have no idea what's getting ready to happen. They are, those are two sinners, and they are going to collide. And I hope they have people around them because it, they're going to need it. That's exactly where we find this story. It's what Christ said, and it's exactly where we find out. You see, we come to the end, and Ruth is placing her life again in the hands of another. See, that's what we won't do. We won't die to ourselves. We won't lay down the life, our lives or the lives of our children for people who don't deserve it. Yet that's the gospel. This guy did not deserve to have Ruth. He did not deserve to be able to buy back the land. Boaz was the guy that had provided for them, cared for them for months, given them everything. And Boaz is like, doesn't matter. We need to do the right thing. We go on. Here's what it says. Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. You can feel the suspense. Remember, this is a time when you had gates because people would come and raid you. Like they're in a foreign land, so you had a gate. The men would go to the gates because they needed to be there to defend, so people would be on watch. And the men would come in. They would check who's coming in, who's coming out. That was a part of it because you had to be careful. And it says, soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Notice the Bible doesn't even give us the guy's name. This guy doesn't even get to be named in Scripture. That's huge. God normally names even the wickedest people. And he's like, this guy's like an afterthought. Yeah, that other guy, that other redeemer. He's not even mentioned. Goes on and says, Boaz says, come over here, sit down. So we went over and sat down. Then Boaz took 10 men from the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. Boaz is getting ready to make a legal argument. Because this is how they settled disputes and civil cases. And they, they did this with the men of the town. Proverbs 31, 23, when it's talking about a Proverbs 31 woman, it says, her husband is known at the city gates where he sits among the elders of the land. You know who wrote Proverbs? Solomon. You know who Solomon was? The great, great, great or the great, great grandson of Ruth. You can't tell me he didn't know the story of Boaz and Ruth. And when he was writing about the perfect woman, he didn't put great-great-grandma in there and great-great-grandpa, Boaz, who sat at the gates, who was willing to risk it all to, to give, to sit at the gates with the elders and say, I, I place myself in your hands. I place myself at your mercy. Whatever you tell me, I'll do. He writes that in. He's like, that's the, the perfect woman understands that that's the way it's going to work, that this guy's going to go, he's going to protect, he's going to have these disputes, that he's going to bring back what is said, and then I'm going to have to submit to it. That's a mess. And that's exactly what Boaz is doing. Ruth has no idea what's going on. 
She is literally just like, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know if I'm going to be married to some man. I don't even know. I'm going to have to sleep with some guy. I don't even know. Goes on and it says, he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. In other words, her husband had a portion. Each person in Israel knew they had a portion. It was set up. Again, in those books we don't like to read, it tells where everybody's land was, where everybody's borders were, and how it was all set up. I thought I should inform you, buy it back in the presence of those seated here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem the property, tell me so that I will know, because there isn't any other than you to redeem it, and I'm next after you. I want to redeem it, he answered. Do, do, do. End of the story. Too bad. Close the book. Ruth's married off, which happens to some people. And they still have to learn how to live with it and live with God's decision. And he says, I want to buy it back. You see, as a redeemer, Boaz is more concerned about doing the right thing before God than he is getting Ruth. And the rulers were there to keep people from hoarding. Can I just tell you, do you remember the law, law we looked at before, which was that the next in line had to impregnate the woman so she could have a son to keep the land. Do you have any idea why that law was put in place in the Old Testament? Because we look at that and say, that's the weirdest, stupidest, dumbest thing. I'm not going to believe in this God. I'm moving on to Islam, something else, Buddhism. There's got to be another religion out there. Like, I can't believe this one. What was the first murder in Scripture? Who was it between? Brothers. Who got sold off into slavery by 11 brothers? Well, 10 brothers. Joseph. The story of the Bible is the story of families killing each other. Let me, let me repeat that. The story of the Bible is the story of families, specifically brothers, murdering one another to get what the other brother has. And God instituted a law in the Old Testament to say, I'm going to even go one step further. You're going to have to be a blessing for your brother. You're going to have to do something that gives him everything, and you can't take any of it. Whew. Man, that's a challenge. Remember, this is at a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and Boaz is doing what's right in God's eyes. And this guy's just along for the ride. He says, oh, yes, I want to redeem it. It being what? The land. I don't want any other responsibility but the stuff, the goods, the, the land that I can farm and make money off of. I don't want any other responsibility but that. I'll take it. I'll buy that. Of course I'll buy that. That's mine. We see God in his great wisdom put some other stipulations in the law so that brothers and family members, the Israelites, couldn't do this to one another without breaking God's law. You, you got to stop being concerned about you and you got to be concerned about more than you. And I'm going to put some hard rules in place so that you have to check your heart at the door and go, what am I doing? That's the beauty of this. goes on, it says this. 1 John 2, 9, this is what Jesus says. The one who says, or this is what John says, bless you. This is what John says. John was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. John 2, 9 says, the one who says in, his, uh, in the light but hates his brother, or says he is in the light but hates his brother is in the darkness until now. 
The one who loves his brother remains in the light. There's no cause for stumbling in him. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. For everything belongs to the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's own lifestyle. This is how we measure life today, right? How does it feel? What are the circumstances? How do I get on top? That's exactly what it is. The flesh, the eyes, the pride of life. But it's all from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. But one who does God's will will remain forever. Remains forever. And that's what we're getting ready to see is going to happen. Remember, we don't even know the name of the guy that's supposed to be the Redeemer. He disappears into oblivion. Just like Orpah. It goes on. Here's what it says in 1 John 4, 20. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother he has seen cannot love the God he's not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother. See, this guy seems like he wants to do the right thing, right? Like, I want to do this. But they don't understand that the rules were there for a purpose. God established boundaries and rules that seem stupid and burdensome, but the older I get, the more wise God is. The more I see how I'm surprised that one of my brothers didn't kill me. Just be honest. I was the baby. I deserved it. Just like Joseph. I mean, it's a miracle my brothers let me live. I'm, they were all much, much older than me. They could have put a pillow over me in the crib, been done, right? I mean, we're talking about brothers and my brothers and sisters who, con who convinced my closest brother to me, who's 10 years away, that he was adopted. <laughs> he thought he was adopted for a number of years. Till one day he was crying and walked in and, and mom's like, what is wrong? And he's like, I know why you treat me different. I know why you don't love me like you love them because I'm adopted. And my mom goes, what are you talking about? He's like, they told me there's no pictures of me because I was adopted. There's no baby pic. There's nothing because you, he's like, we were poor and you were the last kid. We didn't have time to take pictures. She called the family and it did not go well for my siblings. And she had to convince my brother that he wasn't adopted. See, that's family. We're wicked. But God still loves us. He still sends redeemers. Why? I don't know. I don't know why my mom let us live. We messed up her whole life. I look at my parents all the time. I'm like, you had me so late. I'm your retirement, aren't I? Like, this is it. Like, you would have, had a, you would have been in Florida, but now it's just me. Sorry. Like, I, I've apologized before. It goes on. It says this. Then Boaz, on the day you buy the field, look at this. He knows this guy's heart. So he sets him up, and the guy says, oh, yes, I want the lust of the eyes. I want the pride. Look at the land I have. Look at how much I have. Oh, I want that. And then he says, on the day you buy it from Naomi, you will also require Ruth the Moabitess, uh, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. The redeemer replied, uh, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. He's like done. Like there's not even a hesitation. He's like, oh, never mind. I don't want that. I don't want a Moabitess in my house. You know, those people don't want them. I, I don't want that. No, 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 no. 
You see, and this is what happens so often with people in their relationship with Christ. They make a decision and say, oh yes, I want a redeemer. I want to buy it back. And then Jesus looks at us and says, okay, then here. And we go, oh, I didn't get in for that. I'm out of here. I'm, do- I'm done. You, you can have it then. You can have your heaven. You can have your spiritual. You can, I'm, I'm out. I'm done. Now, was that his fault? Or did it just expose our heart? Just exposes our heart. God is still offering forgiveness and redemption and everything that's there. He just looks at us and says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Because that's the way relationships work. We, we work together. And it's messy. And you're going to want to kill each other. And that's why we need the Bible and we need God because we need some and other people and elders in our lives to help us walk through this. And he says, can you imagine this? Look at this. Look at his words. She'll ruin my inheritance. Can anybody tell me what this Redeemer's inheritance, according to Scripture, became? Not this guy. Nothing. He got nothing. He redeemed nothing. He disappears into oblivion. Boaz is going to marry Ruth, and Jesus, the Son of God, is going to come through Boaz's line. A heavenly, eternal inheritance. This guy's only looking at the circumstances and saying, I can't have this Moabitess, this Ruth. I can't do this. I can't, oh, I can't. That's going to ruin everything for me if I obey God and do this very hard thing that I don't understand. I don't even sure I agree with. I can't do this. And he has no inheritance that we know of. It's off into oblivion. And thousands of years later, we're still reading about Ruth and Boaz. And still thankful that their great, 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 whatever great grandson saved us. See, we want to look and say, oh, there's nothing in this for me. There's no inheritance in this for me. I can cut and run. And God says, what? I understand it's hard, but will you trust me? He only saw ruin in obeying God. He couldn't trust him. And you know what? He didn't have to. He had a way out. Boaz was his way out. He had an excuse. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm out. Oh, Boaz. Boaz could do it. I'm still a good man. I don't have to be embarrassed that I didn't take my responsibility. And he took the way out. It goes on in this passage and it says, At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding transactions in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, Buy the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders, look at this, I love this. He said to the elders and to the people, you are my witnesses today that I'm buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Chilion, and Malon. This is baptism. This is what we do in baptism. When someone is baptized, it's saying, I'm coming into a community and all of you are witnesses as to the decision that I'm making today to embrace being a redeemer, to go back out into the world and tell people about Christ. That's what baptism is. It's a covenant. It's saying, I, I'm in on this, and I want everybody to see it so all of you can hold me accountable if I don't do what I'm supposed to do. We don't do this today. We will not give anybody that right in our life. And it's sad. And unless we do, we're going to be miserable. We won't have our life renewed. It says, I've also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess. He goes on. So it's not just the land. 
Malon's wife as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property. He says, the reason I'm doing this is for Malon. I love this. Boaz's character is all the way to the end. His heart is to say, even living in a culture where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, I refuse. I will do what's right by God's eyes according to his law, and I don't care what people think. I don't care that they think I'm going to marry a Moabitess. I don't care what they, that they think I'm throwing away my inheritance. I'm, I'm, I don't care. I'm going to do what God says, and he says, I'm going to do this so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown, you are witnesses today. We're still reading Malon's name. We don't know the Redeemer's name, the other Redeemer. Malon's line is perpetuated through Ruth, brings King David, King Solomon, and brings Jesus himself into the world. Boaz is just saying, I'm going to do the right thing and just believe that God will use it somehow. I don't know, but this is the right thing to do. I wish there were more of us who would do that. We wouldn't be ashamed of God's word. We wouldn't lay down our life just to whatever circumstance, but say, I want to do what God says is good. You see, here's the key. Naomi leaves her land. You ready for this? Tune in if you're tuned out. She leaves her land and has to be saved by a Gentile who comes to believe in the God of Israel, Yahweh of Israel. Ruth who represents the church when we look back on this. She represents us, the Gentile church, loves Naomi and trusts in Naomi's God. Can I just say, you and I are sons of our father Abraham. God is still making his commitment to Abraham through us. We're adopted in just like Ruth was. And God's people still are in darkness and they need to see a great light. It goes on and it says, or sorry, the land is redeemed and a son is born in Bethlehem. That's what this is all about. To guarantee God's everlasting faithfulness. See, Esther was a Jewish woman who married a Gentile. Ruth was a Gentile who married a Jewish man. Yet both books focus on the same main theme of God preserving his own people. In both cases, God intervenes to help and redeem his people when they don't deserve it. In the book of Ruth, God uses a foreign women to continue the line of Israel and Judah, ultimately bringing about the birth of the Messiah and the Savior. You can't make this stuff up. This is crazy how God works. And there's going to come a day when the church stands before God and it's going to be incredible when God comes back down and he establishes his city Jerusalem again. We read about in Revelation and he puts the tribes in their proper places and we as Gentiles get to share in the inheritance when we don't deserve it. We weren't the chosen people originally. God still chose us if we would just surrender to the Messiah. And just like in the Old Testament, they were saved looking forward to a Messiah, we are saved looking back to a Messiah, to a Redeemer. And that's what Ruth is. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. In the book of Esther, she marries a guy that doesn't even believe in God. And God still brings salvation to his people. All the people who are at the city gate, including the elders, said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman, look at what they say, this is incredible. May the Lord make the woman who's entering your house like Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah were the 12 sons of Israel that had the kids. They also sold Joseph into slavery. They were a mess because there were two wives. And God 
Didn't want him to have two wives, but he chose it anyway, and God still uses our mess. That's what God does. And so he says, would they have lots of kids like Leah and Rachel, who together built the house of Israel? May you be powerful in Ephrathath, and your name well known in Bethlehem. What are we reading right now? Boaz's name's well known. Ruth's name is well known. People have been writing about this woman and writing about this for generations. He goes on and he says, May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, who bore to Judah. We talked about that last week. Tamar deceived Judah, got pregnant by her father-in-law. If you remember the story, because he wouldn't do what was right. And God still used that mess. And he says, may, may, may they be like Perez. Perez's name means burst forth. In other words, may this kid you're having burst forth on the scene to bring incredible things. And it goes on and it says, the son of Tamar, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. He says, not the offspring you're going to produce, Boaz, but the only way this woman's going to get pregnant after 10 years of being barren is if God steps in. And we're asking God as the elders of the city to step in on your behalf. Holy smokes, this is incredible. You talk about a loving community. You talk about people doing the right thing in a moment when no one was doing the right thing. We're told that in Judges 21, 25 says people weren't doing what was right. They did whatever was right in their own eyes. You see, God uses messed up, broken families who will die to themselves and their way of life. And you know what's crazy about Jesus? He knows just what to pick at in your life. Everybody would come to Jesus when he was on the earth and they all said, we want to follow you. We want to be disciples. And Jesus, every time, just like Boaz did with the other redeemer, points out the thing that they're not willing to surrender. He does it with Peter, the rich young ruler, the Canaanite woman. He points it out with Cornelius. He points it out with all these people. He picks right at the thing to see what their response will be. He says, if you're not willing to hate, to kill your own mother and father and children, if you're not willing that they're, they're dead to you, you can't be my disciple. Wait, what? Yeah, you got to be willing to follow me and ask people to follow you, and it may cost you your life. I know this week there was a terrorist attack. People claiming faith in Christ. Fame, they're claiming doing it in God's name to kill a bunch of Muslims in the Netherlands. Interesting, though, that you didn't hear the full, where was that? Oh, sorry, New Zealand, not the Netherlands. New Zealand, thank you. Interesting you didn't hear the other story. That in Nigeria, 120 Christians were slaughtered by Muslim extremists last week. You didn't hear that? No. You see, we live in a world that's lying to us. We live in a world that's not going to tell us the truth about God, that doesn't want us to renew our life, that wants to stick us in their mold so we can't fully embrace what God has to offer. These Christians in Nigeria died and paid the ultimate price because they were willing to live in a place that they knew might cost them their lives and share the gospel with their Muslim neighbors. And to do that meant that it may cost them their lives, and they did it. And their women were sold into slavery, their children were murdered, their husbands were murdered, and you didn't even hear anything about it. Because see, that's what happens in our world. The world doesn't promote Boaz's and Ruth's. The, the world promotes the other redeemer. The world promotes those that don't honor God and his word. It promotes the other things, and that's what we chase. 
Those are the stories we run after that fit the narratives that we want. And so it's a great narrative to hear a couple of crazy Christians who weren't Christians because Jesus didn't say, go kill your enemies. Okay, that's, I mean, we know they're not believers because they did the exact opposite of God's word. Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He didn't say, go into their mosque and blow them away. So they're not Christians. I can confidently say they are not in heaven. They did not know Jesus. And it's sad that they were slaughtered. That's not what Christ wants us to do to represent. Are there times when we have to defend? Absolutely. These elders were at the gates and they knew they might have to defend their people. But that's as an aggression coming against you, not you being the aggressor. It goes on and it says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her. She's been barren, guys, she's, she's been barren for almost 11 years. In this culture, to not have a child was a sign that you were nothing, that you were worthless, that no man was ever going to be with you. You weren't worth dying for, you weren't worth giving your life to. And Boaz gave his life to her, not knowing if she was going to produce offspring or not. He didn't know. He's just like, this is the right thing to do, to be a redeemer, and hopefully this will work. I'm just going to do the right thing. And God gives conception. You want to know why we don't see God work? Because we give up way too soon. Way too soon. We give up. We throw in the towel. And at the moment when God wants to break through and we have that moment, when he looks at the rich young ruler and says, sell all you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me, we go, I can't do that. And we walk like Orpah the other way. Or like this redeemer, we go the other way. And we miss the renewing life that God can give. The women said to Naomi, look at this. The women don't even say this to Ruth. See, Naomi is the bitter one. Naomi's the one that has the rightful claim on the land. It's her son. Ruth's just kind of that other person that stepped in to be the surrogate. That's what we are. We're just surrogates for God. That's, we're just there to serve him and whatever happens, happens. And it says, Naomi, blessed be the Lord, Yahweh, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. In other words, they're like, this is incredible. This doesn't happen anymore. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. This is amazing when people actually do what God said. Wow. And then it goes on and it says, he will renew your life. Naomi, this child, this grandbaby is going to renew your life. Boy, there is a hidden message there. Not only is he going to renew as in you get your land back and you're going to have a place to live and raise... No, 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 no. The Messiah of the world who's going to renew the lives of every human being on the face of the planet who takes dead people and raises them back to life for eternity, that guy is going to renew your life. Goes on and it says, I love this. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Yeah, he's going to sustain you forever. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. She's like, this, this woman's amazing. She's better than if you had a whole slew of sons. Like you could have 12 sons and one of them's probably gonna sell one of them into slavery. Ruth didn't do any of that. Ruth has been a righteous woman. She's like, wow, what a woman. Do you wanna know something? I think Ruth and Boaz were probably ugly. I'll just be honest. You want to know why? 
Because God typically in scriptures mentions when people are beautiful. He mentions that about Esther. He says Esther was a woman of beauty, unparalleled beauty. And Xerxes noticed that. We have no recollection that Ruth, nowhere does it say they were anything to look at. Nowhere. Typically, God mentions that in the story. Not always. Either way, they are pronouncing things over this family that are absolutely unbelievable. He goes to the end and it says this. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became his nanny. She has something to live for. She's going to give her life now. This is Naomi who didn't want to give life. She was a miserable wreck. And now she's like, I'm going to give my life to see this grandchild know him and surrender to him because I've seen what Ruth did and I want them to, oh, this is amazing. And it says, the neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of King David. Now these are the family records of Perez. Perez was fathered in Hezron, uh, fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amenibdab, Amenibdab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Solomon, Solomon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Holy smokes. Nobody saw this coming. From Perez, Perez, which is the kid that was conceived terribly to this mess and we're going to see the son of God come into the world you see the overwhelming majority of people in scripture did simple things in simple places our problem is simple decisions we make into big problems and we don't do them the story began with Naomi's loss it ends with Naomi's gain God is so gracious that he puts it back on Naomi. It began with death and ends with a birth. The son for the world. To show that it was not true. What Naomi said was not true. She said that the Lord had made her bitter. The Lord had done this to her. He had not. He had brought her back from Moab. And if we could just learn to wait and trust in God, our complaints against God would prove untrue and he would renew our lives. We have an enemy. And that enemy wants to stop God's family line. He doesn't want any more children to be born again. He wants no one to have a renewed life. He wants no one. No one to have that. He's going to fight at every turn to keep us from surrendering ourselves to him. And I know that because I struggle with it every day. This passage hits me just like it probably hits some of you. Then he said to them, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What does a man benefit if he gains the whole world but forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in the glory and that of his Father and the holy angels. Ruth and Boaz have no shame. And when Jesus was born into the world, don't you think, don't you think, that when he died and they came back to life, don't you think that they weren't like, holy smokes, that we just got to be a simple part of raising a simple family. You know, we love to look at the line. See, your life is a line. You got to decide how you're going to renew it. And 
Your line's about 70 years, maybe, if you're lucky. Might be a little longer, maybe less. I don't know. You could die tomorrow. You could die on the way home. I don't know. Around 70 years is the line. Really, all your life is, at best, is a dot on the line of eternity. There have been people before you for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, and there'll be as people after you as long as God tarries and doesn't come back. Your life is just simply, that's it. Pretty meaningless. Unless God's the one living through you. And if that's the case, then your great, 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 great grandson may just do something that turns the world upside down that it's worth giving your life to, it's worth pouring your life into simple, hard things, it's willing, your willingness to give up what God might ask you to give up, to surrender, because God can do amazing things. The question is, will we? Will we let him renew our life, or are we going to keep running to renew our life with whatever we want to find? And when he picks at that thing, and when he goes to that scripture that you don't want to hear, and you put your hands up and say, I'm not going there, Why? What's going on in your heart that you can't trust God through those hard, hard things? Because he wants you to say yes to him because it's the only way. And if you'll do it, Jesus says, you will gain life. You will be saved. And there's no shame. You can be unashamed. Even when you sin, you can look and say, I, I did it again. I'm sorry. And I don't have to be ashamed. I can come to you and experience your grace. And I can start over and get the help I need and be back on track. See, this is the story of Ruth. It's a story of God renewing life in a situation that looked hopeless. I don't know where you're at, but I can tell you that this is exactly what God asks of us. See, there's only three answers God will give you on any one thing. He'll tell you yes, he'll tell you no, or he'll tell you wait. And the one answer that bothers us more than any is wait. And Ruth and Naomi had to wait multiple generations to see if this really paid off. And then we look back and go, boy, did it. Because I have a Savior who died in my place, who gave his life for me so that I can lay my life down and say, my life is yours. And he says, I'm going to keep you alive so that you can tell other people that they don't have to die right now. That they can live in me, in newness, renewed life in relationship with me to tell others about me. And you know what? It may cost you your life. Matter of fact, it cost 120 brothers and sisters of ours their lives this week. Because they decided that they would deny themselves. They would pick up their cross and they would tell people who didn't want to hear the truth, the truth about who he was. And they were killed for it. Let me ask you. Are you willing to be a Boaz, a Ruth? Are you willing to even be a Naomi who finally repented and said, God, you're good. I, I, I'm no longer bitter. I surrender.